Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Aaron. And we're so happy to be coming to you on this most glorious time of year, which of course is Pride Month. And we here at Queens just celebrated Pride here in Salisbury, Maryland, which was a great deal of fun. And we just got back from a drag brunch with the fabulous Magnolia Applebottom. So maybe I'll give a shout out to her on the social media. So maybe she'll give us some more publicity. Mm-hmm. And you just had your uh, little virgin no more experience at this uh, uh, event we were just at, right? Yes, I, I finally tipped a drag queen, which I was always too shy to do before. Mm-hmm. I have been to drag shows before, let me be clear. But I have never actually tipped a drag queen mm-hmm. that I can recall, which is terrible if you think about it. Look at that, our TJ is all grown up now. I'm no longer exploiting free entertainment from drag queens in any case we come to you with a very exciting episode and we are going to be talking this week about the new show queer as folk the third iteration of this series with the same title and it's kind of hard to summarize a tv show of eight episodes but in some it's basically the chaotic very messy lives of a group of queer folks living in new orleans yes i think they could have just called it messy as fuck as right. opposed Which, to queer as folk. I mean, but isn't that isn't that the essence of queerness? I mean, it's just being complete and totally chaotic. Like, no, no, TJ, I'm shocked, shocked to hear such a thing from you. I know, it's very surprising coming from, you know, me of all people. Not that I'm ever to be a, a messy person. Um, but before we proceed, I almost forgot to say that... I am a Pisces, which I always mention that, which I cannot believe I almost forgot on these, the High Holy Days, I almost forgot to mention my zodiac sign. We are astrology gays, after all, here at Queens of the Bees, or at least one of us is. Mm. And Aaron, what's your zodiac sign? Nah, I can't remember. He's I don't an keep Aries. Up with those he things. knows very well what his <laughs> sign is. He just does this to, to thwart me and torment me. In any case, we won't belabor that too much. I just wanted to get that in there before I forgot. And again, happy Pride Month. So with that, we'll just take a brief break and we'll be right back to talk about the show. All right, so let's just jump right in, if you will permit us to do so. And of course, it's worth pointing out that this, as we alluded to in the opening, is the third series with this same title. Um, So I think it's maybe worth elaborating a bit on how it's in in conversation, particularly with its American predecessor, because that's sort of the most immediate one, which obviously came out in the early 2000s, a very, very different period of American history and culture, although we feel like we're going back, (laughs) given some of the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. But I do like the way that the series, this new one, kind of takes the elements of the original that we are American audiences we're most familiar with kind of threw it all into a blender and then just saw how it fell out. Like, because I mean, the characters are some of the recognizable ones that we know from the previous version, but have been kind of rewritten and with sort of elements scattered between the various ones that wasn't the case before. Yeah, and when you say that the characters are like the originals, you mean that they share some of the personality types and some of the habits and things like that. They are different characters. It is a new, this is a new show, right. new setting, new characters, right. so, as opposed to one of those other kind of reboots where they kind of just recycle the same folks. Right, exactly. So let's start with the setting, because I think that's one of the most crucial differences just out right out of the gate. And obviously, in comparison to the American version, which took place in, I put this in heavy quotes, Pittsburgh, but was in reality filmed in Toronto. Or even, Isn't everything filmed in Toronto, though? Right. Or the British version, which was in a similarly post-industrial setting, we're now in sort of the, you know, the Big Easy. I mean, there's a very different kind of cultural milieu of New Orleans than there is of the earlier versions of this show, which I think really impacts the kinds of stories that it's 
able to tell and that it wants to tell. And it also refocuses on the kinds of people who are going to be in these stories. Uh, you know, one of the big criticisms that uh, the American original uh, got was there was a whole bunch of white folks as if, you know, people of color didn't exist in our uh, queer communities. Uh, but part of that is excused kind of by the setting. Uh, you know, by choosing Pittsburgh, you could kind of get away with that, especially back then. You couldn't do a thing like that in the modern-day New Orleans setting, which is, why I think, part of the reason why they chose it, is because it's a city that explains why the cast is going to end up being so diverse, uh, because we're going to have characters from all kinds of different backgrounds. Right, and I mean, I really loved that about this show, is that it kept the sexy, kind of risque, and also, as I alluded to earlier, like, very chaotic <laughs> set, like aesthetic of the original show, but much more diverse cast like we're dealing with a you know a sort of panoply of queer identity which i think is obviously something that needs to happen in 2022 but i also think that it allows the show to tell some really interesting stories and have very very interesting characters mm-hmm, me too. as as the, as the character in the golden girls once said the characters are so well written <laughs> that they're interesting which is banal but also apt in this case yes yes very much so and i also like it and i'll say this just in honor of the pride celebration that we went to i also like that uh the new queers folk series so embraces the 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 sexual and gender diversity of our lgbtq alphabet soup community uh because that kind of thing in a show sort of reminds us of the important value that we get by continuing to ally ourselves with one another as queer folks, rather than just kind of dividing ourselves up into into ever smaller groups. Right. So, I mean, maybe then it's worth like sort of giving the broad strokes of what happens in this show so that people aren't kind of lost. Because if you haven't seen it. Um, So basically, in many ways, the show revolves around the character Brody, who is the Brian equivalent. If you've seen the 2000s version, he's, you know, a little bit careless, a little bit, you know, li- like, fa- what am I looking for? Fancy free, like, just sort of dances through life, if we're using a wicked <laughs> yes, w- a wicked metaphor. Um, and he sort of comes back to New Orleans, having been absent for a long time. And then he kind of starts to intersect with the lives he left behind, including his ex, including his brother, his mother, who's played, his mother's played by Kim Control, and as well as, you know, all these other people. And then, of course, there's the shooting, which is the kind of seminal event in this entire episode that sets the, many of the plot threads in motion, that there's a mass shooting at the club called the Babylon. And then the rest of the season explores how the characters deal with the trauma, but also how they deal with Brody's rearrival, which kind of mm-hmm. shakes up the equilibrium that has kind of been established before he comes back. Mm-hmm. So why don't we use then Brody as the jumping off point? Because he is arguably the sort of linchpin around which all the other characters evolve. And I'm sorry for my overwrought vocabulary, but not really, because that's what you <laughs> signed up for with Queens of the Bees. If I didn't do that, you would think, what's wrong with TJ? He's not being as overwrought as usual. <laughs> Anyway, Brody becomes the character that everyone loves to hate in the show, but I don't know that we as audiences necessarily do. Like, yeah, he's not I know. I certainly don't. Right, because I mean, and I think comparing him to Brian is useful because Brian was an asshole <laughs> and a very callous kind of asshole with a heart of gold, mm-hmm. despite his protest. Otherwise, Brody is not m- as malignant as Brian could be. Like, he's not as deliberately caustic as Brian often was. And I think that's part of his appeal and his charm as a character. Yeah, one thing that's sort of different, and I'm saying for all of the haters of Brody that are out there, uh, in comparing him to Brian from the earlier American version, like, Brian, Brian really knew how to be mean. 
And yeah. he often did it strategically. He often did it for something that he considered to be the greater good, but he really knew how to be mean. Brody doesn't really seem to know how to be mean. He's just more kind of just thinking about himself most, most of the time. Right. He has, it's not that he is belligerent in the way that Brian is. He's just careless. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's almost naive for yeah. someone who's so worldly and so obviously sexually experienced. He's a very naive person who doesn't really, he's myopic. That's the other word I would use. Like he's very myopic and then he has a real struggle to see outside of himself and to see how his actions affect other people. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those actions of Brody's okay. uh, that have gotten this kind of like criticism from other folks and things like that. Well, in order to get at sort of what Brody does and why people respond to him, maybe it's helpful to go through like how his actions affect each of the other characters because that will help us, I think, talk about the characters themselves but also how they intersect with Brody. So let's talk about Noah first, who is his ex when he comes back to New Orleans, who, as it turns out, is having a very steamy and sexy affair with Daddyus, who is Brody's best friend. Mm -hmm. This is where the messiness starts right out of the game. Like, as soon as he comes back, he's... (laughs) Literally calling Daddy as he was literally fucking Noah mm-hmm. while they are on the phone. Exactly. Which, I don't know how people do that. I'm usually, I'm easily distracted, but even I would find it I don't believe in multitasking. I mean, I believe in multitasking, but it's like, how do you... Anyway, we don't need to get on to the mechanics of whether <laughs> one can have... Whether one can talk on the phone while having sex or not. I'm sure that our listeners will let me know if they if they have in fact done this. But anyway, I digress. As it turns out, though, things get even messier because Daddyus is one of the people who are killed in the attack on the the nightclub. So Noah, to some degree, and I think rightfully so, blames Brody for the breakup of their relationship. And so once Brody returns to New Orleans and is kind of segueing back into his life, he kind of disrupts what Noah has managed to establish. So Noah has to contend with both the trauma of the slaughter at the nightclub while also contending with his obvious residual feelings for Brody. Mm-hmm. And of course, on top of that, he also has to deal with uh, the, this thing that sort of happens multiple times that we'll get to, uh, where he also feels like he needs to keep his relationship with Daddy a secret from Brody. So that just sort of adds to that tension that's there. Right. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I think this show does well is kind of showing how trauma radiates throughout life. Like, it really can hit an entire community and disrupt and add a further layer of dysfunction to an already deeply dysfunctional setting. And I mean, what I like about it and what I appreciate about the messiness of the Noah Brody dynamic is that that's not uncommon. Like it's, it happens a lot within the sort of incestuous gay community. Oh yeah. You have these kind of like emotionally fraught, shall we say, relationships. And also that tendency uh, for, you know, friend groups to have, for lack of a better term, sort of cycled through one another in various ways. That right. That's a thing that happens sometimes. Right. And of course, the problem, of course, is that Noah doesn't tell Brody about what happened with mm-hmm. Daddyus until like, several episodes later, rather than just being open and upfront mm-hmm. about what was going on. To start with. And you'll hear me say that a lot during this past that a lot of the problems in this show are fill in the blank didn't tell Brody that XYZ was going on. Right. Communication. <laughs> Communication is key. That is the thing we need to take away from this show. If yep. I have to take one key lesson away from this series, it is that communi- open and honest communication 
is really important. So that is your one of your PSGs for this episode. Exactly. So that's it. So we're done with the the podcast, right? Yep, that's it. Thanks for joining us for Queens of the Week. We kid, <laughs> we kid, of course. Um, however, Brody also has a very difficult relationship with his family. Um, his mother, Brenda, as I alluded to earlier, is played by Kim Control, who is delightful, as always. I felt like, I did feel shades of Samantha. Like, it felt very much in that kind of tradition. Um, and also his brother, Julian, who has cerebral palsy, and I want to pause just for a moment to say I appreciate also the show's inclusion of disability within its like representational frame because I think that that is something that even the queer community sometimes struggles with acknowledging that people with disabilities disabled people have desire like I think that is a huge thing and we see Julian have feelings and sexual encounters with multiple people both abled and disabled and I love that I think that's a great moment Mm -hmm. um, that is really in keeping with the show's general ethos. I also really just like the way that uh, Julian's character was introduced to us in the first uh, episode when we see him, because the first episode sort of sets this up as a Brody show. I honestly thought that what was going to happen with Julian is that he was just going to sort of be a side character, someone with a somewhat invisible disability, but wouldn't be part of the main cast. And the show sort of tricked me and made him into a major character. Right. Uh, Which is something that I do want to, again, applaud this show for doing, uh, because it would have been so easy to just sort of include a character like that, kind of just for show. Right. Uh, But to actually make him sort of central to the main plot threads was a really, really, really nice way to say that this show isn't just just sort of you know sort of paying a nod to folks with disabilities but is actually centering stories like this right and he's not the only character with a disability like there are multiple characters that appear within the show as desiring people but we'll get to that a little later because the other major character who with a disability isn't as connected to Brody's storyline so I want to talk about them separately Mm -hmm. just because I think they're important enough to be alluded to in that way now Julian's life becomes even more complicated when Noah and Julian hook up and get into a relationship, mm-hmm. which obviously makes Brody crazy. Like, as, well, as it, well, as it well, well, it ultimately makes him crazy because once again, they don't tell Brody what's going on. Right. So open and honest lines of communication are absolutely crucial. Um, and then there's Mingus, who is this show's kind of like Justin equivalent. Like he's the young queer character. Gender non-conforming or non-binary, I believe, is how they refer to themselves. They love drag for them as their sort of expression of themselves in a way that they first distance themselves from that identity after the shooting, but then gradually come back into it. Because they're a really stellarly good drag performer Hmm. and are in the midst of their performance when the shooting happens. Obviously, they get feelings for Brody because that's just how it happens, you know. And Brody is very handsome and very sexual, so that's Mm -hmm. worth pointing out. Yes, Mm -hmm, indeed. But in a notable change from the 2000s template, they don't actually get together. Like that's not the the, that's not the romance that we're led to invest in as much. Exactly. We still get the pursuit from the younger character of the more mature or I should say older, not necessarily more mature (laughs) character. But yeah, but again, the show sort of tricks us. Right. Yeah. And so obviously then we have Mingus's mother, Judy, who is lovely and sort of the uh, Sharon Glass character from the original uh, the 2000s version who is very accepting and sometimes too much accepting of Mingus Um, but I like that I think it's good to see parents that are accepting of their queer children Um, we can talk we're going to talk a little bit about Mingus more later but I just wanted to touch on him or them because they are sort of one of the other people whose lives are affected by Brody for better and worse 
And then lastly, and I think most importantly, both narratively, but also like I think emotionally from the series point of view, is Ruthie, a young trans woman who happens to be Mingus's teacher, but was also best friends with Brody in high school and has been best friends with him ever since, as well as her partner, Cher, um, a black non-binary person. I think they're identified as <laughs> non-binary. Um, and they are having children at the beginning of this episode, the first episode, from which Brody is the biological parent. Okay. So that's another intertext with the 2000s version. And so obviously it's very clear from the beginning that the relationship between Brody and Ruthie is complicated. And as much as they love and care about each other, Brody is kind of an agent of chaos disrupting Ruthie's life that she has established with Cher and has convinced herself that that's what she wants. Mm -hmm. But I think what Brody helps her to realize is that actually this domestic life with Cher is not nearly as satisfying in any way as she originally thought it would be. And what I love so much about it, the way the show presents Ruthie and dealing with uh, her feelings about the life that she sort of built for herself is that because her character is she deals with everything through such intense levels of irony that she probably honestly doesn't know anymore <laughs> what she actually feels about everything because everything is sort of treated with a dismissive joke. Right. But whether that's dismissive because she's actually trying to dismiss something or because it's actually important to her, her outward response is the same. Right. <laughs> but we all know folks who are like that, where everything is seen through irony to the point where you're like, I don't actually know what you think anymore. <laughs> right. And I mean, I, I think that of all the characters that the show gives us, I actually think Ruthie is probably the most complicated and the best written character mm. because she's the most, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say flawed because that's an easy word, but I do think that she makes very deeply questionable life choices, but we all do. And that's something that we have to cope with in our queer lives that we're mm -hmm. all just sort of messy and kind of muddling through because that's just what life is. Mm -hmm. And I think that Ruthie most fully, I think, encapsulates the complexity of contemporary queer life because of her trans identity, because of the things that she's had to go through to accomplish her <laughs> sense of completeness and the sense of self that she's managed to attain so far. Yeah. And I actually think that she's the most interesting character for completely different reasons that actually aren't about really her sort of queer identity, but are about her persona as a still kind of youngish person who's still trying to figure out ultimately what her values are, what her goals are for her life, what what kind of relationship she wants to have. She still is figuring that stuff out. And what I find so compelling about her character is that that stands out for me, at least, even above the very clear importance of her, like, trans experiences right. as they're written into the show as well. Because for me, that's the kind of thing that makes a character like her so freaking relatable is because she isn't just defined by her trans identity, but we also don't act like that's not important either. The show does a really good job of balancing, I think, uh, those different kinds of concerns that her character would have. Right, and one of the things I also, again, appreciated that it showed Ruthie as a sexual being, like someone who has to go, had, has had to go through a number of like soul searchings to get to the point where she feels both desirable but also desiring and able to experience actual pleasure because i think so often the case that we either extract trans people in particular from sexual desire in much the same way we do with dis disabled folk and we just either that or we fetishize them mm -hmm. and i think that this show doesn't do that and i love that about it like i, mm -hmm. I think that that's what makes it such a necessary show today mm -hmm. is to help us sort of understand the, the sort of 
mental spaces that these characters inhabit. And now that you mention that, I don't think the show actually even really talks explicitly about that sort of either desexing or fetishizing of trans folks. It sort of just shows that that's a thing that can happen, but it doesn't talk about it. In the same way that the show explicitly talks about that same dynamic with folks who have visible disabilities. Right. Like, because the show actually brings up that idea of people either kind of think you have no desire at all or they treat you like some sort of fetish object. <laughs> but it doesn't do that with trans folks. It doesn't talk about it. It just kind of shows us that that's the kind of thing that could occur. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, one of my favorite scenes with Ruthie is where she's talking about, like, what she had to... How she went from being the twink that all the people wanted to have sex with to like this middle stage where she was, you know, sort of transitioning to the new stage where she's a woman and has to like learn how to sexually desire as a woman. Mm -hmm. Like, and I thought that that was just really well written and well articulated, at least from my perspective as a cis gay man. Like I don't, I would, I would have to inquire among my trans friends to see how, if that echoes or resonates with them. But for me, at least I thought it was a pretty extraordinary moment of trans representation. Yep. Um, So of course we, alluded to the impact that Brody's presence has on Ruthie's life and it quickly becomes clear like there's some moments we get in flashbacks of their relationship in high school where it's clear that they had feelings for each other but that her transition put the kibosh on that that that's what sort of short-circuited what was looking to be a gay male relationship exactly because when we see these flashbacks to when they're still in high school what we see is two people you know outwardly presenting as boys and kind of curious about each other and they're already friends as well so they kind of we see them having romantic moments here and there uh but then there's the you know the asking to the big dance (laughs) you know who who's going to go together and of course as two people outwardly presenting as gay boys are they going to go together brody assumed well sure let's 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 do this and then it's in reckoning with that, do we, don't we go to the dance is actually what leads to, within our story, Ruthie's beginning to come out as trans. Right. And I mean, that's also one of the more, like, I felt deeply emotionally resonant moving scenes where, you know, they have their conversation after they don't, they sort of split up because Ruthie's, or Ruthie's essentially like, I don't want to be with you anymore. Like, um, and then she's like, I just couldn't wear another suit. Like, I just couldn't do it. And I was just like, that just hit me like a gut punch. Yeah. You know, how much clothes really do act as imprisoners sometimes mm-hmm. for some of us, you know, when we are struggling with our sense of self. Yeah. And I thought that was just a brilliantly written and acted moment that kind of helped us Ident- like understand her character and I also appreciated that the show did not dead name her like that it bleeps out the uses of her dead name in the flashbacks yeah, yeah the one thing that I did say because I thought it was a little bit confusing right. because I didn't since it just bleeps out the names I didn't know what they were bleeping out right so it, it, took, took, a, it, it took a long time for me to even figure out that that's what was happening right which of course that comes to the present when they're on a gay pride float after which you know Brody and Ruthie have had one of their many fallings out um, in which she's gotten in trouble for being at a party where Mingus was drink and his friends were drink and their friends were drinking. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she gets in trouble for being a teacher and ably and abetting mm-hmm. lots of underage drinking, and she somehow blames Brody for yep. l- asking her to come out. That's exactly. And before we can even get into all that, I wanted to even say about the flashback scenes when uh, Brody and Ruthie are young. And uh, Ruthie is, of course, facing that painful decision about, you know, whether or not to 
accept herself, first of all, <laughs> and then, of course, whether or not to then let anyone know and let her friends know, her people close to her, all of that challenge that she's got to deal with in terms of deciding what she's going to do. We see her doing that, and we see her strategy for dealing with that is to just push Brody away, is to just say, I don't want to have any involvement with you at all. But Brody, as a teenager, did what the same thing that Brody as an adult does, is Gata doesn't accept that as an answer. There's a scene where this happens, where the sort of like friendship breakup happens while they're teenagers, and they're out shopping for uh, Brody's suit. And while they're out, uh, Ruthie's character sort of runs off and leaves, but leaves her backpack. Mm-hmm. And of course, Brody takes it with him and ultimately returns it uh, to Ruthie. And indicates that he, you know, he's has figured out uh, what the big painful secret is that she's really holding in. That right. he's got a sense of what that is now, and so they end up sort of rekindling their friendship. But it only happens after Ruthie does that thing of saying, "Well, frankly, it would just be easier for me to just walk away from this than to actually walk through it right. with this person who is my friend." Which, now that I think about it, now that you put it that way, there's actually an interesting doubling, which I just now occurred to me, between Ruthie's responses to those kinds of crises and Brody's. Like, that's <laughs> part of the reason I think that they bond so strongly is because they both are fleers. Like, <laughs> their first response to a crisis is flight. <laughs> Whether it's Ruthie fleeing to the club because she doesn't really want to contend with the emotionally unfulfilling nature of her relationship with Cher or the complications of motherhood, whether it's Brody not wanting to deal with any of the crises that have enveloped his life, not all of which are his fault. They both, their first impulse is always, let me run away, rather than, as you put it, run through. Mm-hmm. And it, But ultimately, as it turns out, spoiler alert, as Brody is once again getting ready to flee from New Orleans after having co-signed for a dra- one of the drag queens, Bussy, to buy... Let Babylon renovate it to help re- as a rebirth from the shooting. He decides to flee, but then, after talking with the ghost of Daddyus, he ends up going back to the person that he's been in love with the whole time, which is drumroll, please, Ruthie. Ruthie. And after asking her out into the like out in front of her house, they start making out. She says, "What the fuck, Brody?" And then they start making out, and it starts raining. It's very like. In a less self-aware show, it would be cheesy, but I think it's meant to be. I think it's it's meant to call attention to its own cheesiness to a degree. Like, I think that that's part of it. And I also was like, I kind of saw it coming, but I'm not sure that a lot of people would have seen it coming. But as someone who has been in love with their friends, all of them at some point or another, if you're male, I'm sorry, not really. I was like, I felt that deeply satisfying. And also it made sense. Like, it, it, that that reconciliation slash like making out in the rain seemed like a natural endpoint for how fraught and difficult and spiky their relationship has been throughout the whole series mm-hmm. run. Yeah. And for me, I can't say that I saw it coming the way that it happened. I think I saw it coming that Brody had these sort of feelings still for Ruthie. Like that I kind of saw coming. Ruthie actually reciprocating those feelings is not what I saw coming. <laughs> right. Uh, and again, partly for me, it's because that character was drawn to be so sort of detached from what she actually seems to really want out of life mm-hmm. that I couldn't get a good sense of what that would even be. So the fact that it at this point at the end of season one seemed to be Brody was a big surprise to me. I actually appreciate it. Right. And I mean, it's not as if Ruthie's the only one who is messy, though, in that sort of lesbian... I would call them lesbianic just because they're not, strictly speaking, lesbians in the sense of, like, two cis women together. They're a queer couple, let's put it that way. But female presenting, mm-hmm. you know, however vaguely we want to put it. They're basically the 
they're lesbians from the 2000s version. Like, that's the equivalent. Yeah, they're Mel and Lindsay from, right. <laughs> from the 2000s. But as it turns out, Sherry is not the innocent. Although, she, or, sorry, they. Um, although they are scathingly critical of Brody and deeply antipathetic to them, with good reason, as it mm-hmm. turns out, they end up making out with, drumroll please, Brenda, the grandmother of their children. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Not once, but several times. They didn't they, just make they it. They also had sex in the bathroom <laughs> of a bar after Kim Cattrall gives a very beautiful performance of maybe this time from Cabaret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it was like, I, even I, who was like, I was like, here for all the juiciness and the drama, was like, oh my God. Yeah. And that I actually did see coming with Cher. I didn't see it with Brenda, okay? I, did, I didn't see that it <laughs> that, that Cher would stray with the grandmother to their children. I did not see that happening. Again, way to surprise me, show. Uh, but what I did see was Cher straying mm. uh, from the relationship because of how the word I've been using when in our private conversations is sanctimonious. Right, Cher <laughs> because is of how very sanctimonious. that character is about pretty much everything I was like, they have to have some kind of big flaw like this. And so when it happened, I was like, called it. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, they are basically like if a Tumblr post came to life and was became a TV character. Yes. And I don't, I know that seems dismissive because we all know those people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not one of those people, but I know those people. And they serve a useful function. They are good hearted people. Like, I don't doubt their good intentions. It's just, I think sometimes they may be a little overzealous mm-hmm. in the pursuit of pure moral purity. Um, but that's again that's what makes the show so compellingly watchable mm-hmm. is that we get very frustrated with these characters but never do we ever actually hate them despite how silly and foolish they may act and to my mind that's the mark of a good drama is when mm-hmm. you can find characters absolutely infuriating yeah. but love them anyway yeah. despite their <laughs> despite their foibles exactly much as we do in real life exactly because Cher's actually my favorite character in the show oh that, now that is interesting <laughs> do you want to say why because because that character is so Again, sort of messy in a very complicated way. And someone that very clearly wants things that, frankly, I would call her kind of pure and nice and honest, but has so many stumbling blocks that they kind of trip over along the way that makes their story really interesting and compelling to me. Mm -hmm. You know, they start out this kind of almost annoying character, but they end up being the opposite of a kind of Mary Sue, I'm perfect kind of character. They end up being this deeply flawed person, and not just because of the cheating. The the whole thing with the affair with the grandma character is so funny for me because it happens happens subsequent to them talking after a long time of Cher constantly trying to push Brenda out of their lives to keep them away from themselves and the kids but of course Brenda has got that grandma energy so she is not going to be deterred from helping out and doing all those things which Cher appreciates but can't ever say so right (laughs) <laughs> and because they're that kind of character that gives that the actor playing that part all kinds of opportunities to do all of this interest, interesting contradictory performance stuff where this character comes to really appreciate and rely upon Brenda while constantly saying how much they dislike Brenda <laughs> for all kinds of reasons for all kinds of intersectional reasons for all kinds of reasons they don't have anything to do with actually interacting with Brenda 
And Brenda even says that when they're at this bar talking and she even says to Cher, this isn't Twitter. <laughs> Just talk like a regular person. <laughs> I, I literally, I think I stood up and applauded at that moment. Because we all know, again, people who tend to speak in Twitterese in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that this show gives us this very, uh, you know, there's no getting around it. It's an unusual relationship. Not, yes. I mean, one is a young black person non-binary person the other is an older obviously fairly conservative white lady um of new orleans mm-hmm. um who as it turns out comes out as gay mm-hmm. i mean who wouldn't be being to ed begley yeah. jr yeah. i would probably come you know exactly. i would turn straight i think but and, and brenda even has more to her story which she kind of says kind of as a slap to Cher, who of course assumes that Cher knows everything about this rich white lady from the South. <laughs> and Brenda's like, actually, I grew up dead broke right. and just married a rich dude. That's how I got money. Yep. <laughs> right. And I think that there's a lesson in that to not make assumptions mm-hmm. that we think, and which cuts both ways. That we all should be wary of making assumptions about what other people are actually like, um, of which, a thing of which we are all guilty at one point or another. And so, Basically, that's sort of the messy part out of the way, mostly. Because um, what I appreciate about the show, you know, I've read some criticisms of this show from critics who have taken it to task for being too strong or have too many storylines or there's too much going on. It's like, did you watch? I had two questions for these criticisms. One, did you watch the original in 2001? Like the, the Showtime version. Obviously, that was true there, too. I mean, God, that show was really fucking messy Mm -hmm. but two i want to be like how many queer people do you know like all (laughs) of our lives are messy like it's just part of i'm just convinced it's part of being queer it's also arguably part of being human but sorry my my life is not messy (laughs) he's with me so i i beg to differ on that one i couldn't even finish saying that sentence so i was just like but yes but isn't that why we watch shows like this is for the messiness like do we want just a tidy neat drama that ties to things up into me both i mean that's not what i watch tv for exactly i'm like it's a soap opera (laughs) yeah yes it is and for that reason i do have one complaint about the show is that it's only eight episodes like i feel like we could have done with a couple more like i felt like it's a nice round 10 episode season would have given a little more time for some of the stories to land a little more completely because i do feel that like mingus in particular feels like a character that's a little ancillary to the drama at times. I think that they kind of get the short end of the stick. Not as much toward the end, but toward the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like for the first four episodes, they kind of just float around at the edges. And I actually like the way that Migs ends up kind of having to float because that actually felt more realistic to me. Mm. Uh, Given that when the show begins, Mingus is still 17 and in high school. This is a bunch of grown-ups. I actually kind of like that Mingus doesn't immediately infiltrate into the center of that social dynamic because they really shouldn't. Mm. They're still a kid. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, I just guess compared to like the 2000s version where Justin so quickly becomes exactly. part of the queer community. But I think that that's also representative of a very different moment. Like part of the reason that Justin is so quickly brought into that world is because he lives in a very straight world. Like mm-hmm. the world that he inhabits is a straight one. Mm-hmm. Whereas the world that Mingus inhabits, both because it's New Orleans, but also because just Gen Z is just queerer, like mm-hmm. gender conforming wise, than the previous generations. Mingus doesn't necessarily have the huge hurdles to face. And like, Mingus has a trans teacher. Right, exactly. <laughs> so his, sorry, their kind of in, introduction to this world isn't quite as like bracing or shocking mm-hmm. in any way as what 
it was for Justin in the early aughts. Like, <laughs> yeah. Also, because the character is, you know, still 17 uh, when the sh- uh, show starts, there is, I think, a more contemporary understanding of the inappropriateness of a sexual relationship between that character and an older character. Whereas That's true. back in the early 2000s, I honestly don't think that we all got it. I think that's, I think that we I think we were more okay with that relationship than we probably should have been. Right. And I mean I think that's in part because Mingus and Brody don't read visually as being so wide apart in age as Justin and Brian do. Mm-hmm. Even though diegetically Brian is 29 at the beginning of the 2000s version. I looked it up because I was curious. I don't know how old Brody is supposed to be. Like it's mid 20s, right? Something like that. I don't but know. I don't know. It's like they all look like the same age. Like there's not a lot of like they're, they're not di- either like in terms of how old the actors are but just how they present themselves. It doesn't seem quite as drastic of an age difference. But one of the things I think that Mingus represents other than the sort of queerness of Gen Z, which is in itself kind of liberating, but also, as we find out in the latter half of the season, after they kind of start slutting it up, is that they contract HIV. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge deal, obviously, even today, when it's no longer the death sentence that it once was. But it proves to be the, the thing that kind of gives their character oomph and allows them to sort of grow and develop and contend with the kind of complexities that's going to change. Like, their life will change as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, But I did think the show did a very good job of showing how HIV is still part of queer life disproportionately, but it's not the, sh- it's not the life-ending or the depressing or the, you know, the macabre specter of death that it would have been mm-hmm. in, say, the 2000s version where Uncle Vic is basically mm-hmm. the one suffering from HIV. Exactly. And also, but let, let's not overstate it, too, because I think the show did a very good responsible thing in rightfully having Mingus completely freak the hell out. Right. Upon getting the news that they're HIV positive, because it's still a serious disease. Yes, there are treatments that are available that can extend people's lives and all that kind of stuff, and that's true, that's great and wonderful. Yes, there are all kinds of things in place. There's great understanding. Still a disease that can kill you. <laughs> and, I, and I like that the show didn't lean too far into the HIV AIDS is just not a big deal at all. Right. I like that it, it, it takes more of a middle path. It does, and there's two key scenes, because one is when he tells his mother, or they tell their mother. I'm really sorry about the pronouns. It's just, it's sometimes difficult to keep track of. I sound old, but I'm just putting my cards on the table. Well, you are old, dear. Shut up. <laughs> I'm just putting my cards on the table. I don't deliberately mean to misgender. I'm, that's why I make a point of correcting myself. Um, so Megas tells their mother, and they're really kind of breaking down in tears because they're just so afraid. Even now, even despite all the ways that Judy has shown that she's this hugely accepting person. And then, you know, she starts laughing, and she's like, oh, I thought you were going to tell me you were dying or something. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought that was well done and i i love the bond between this mother and her child like it was just wonderful yep um and then but the even more pertinent to what you were just saying was when he's when they are talking to bussy in the like shadows of babylon after having performed you know they mingus asks bussy like are people gonna still want to have sex with me like i mean that's a you know when you're a young person in particular like that's a really (laughs) or not so young or not so young but i was i appreciated that the show talked about that because there's so much i think that is easy to just not talk about i mean i'm white i'm white cis gay so i grew up in a milieu in which people don't always talk about things like you just don't talk about uncomfortable things because it's just it's uncomfortable so i talk about it but this show really brings out to the forefront a very difficult conversation that is challenging, but I love that Bussy's like, what are you talking about? Of course people are going to want to fuck you. You're a twink. 
and cute. Well, of course, you're going to have lots of sex. Like, right. who cares? And again, I agree with you that, like, the show doesn't say it's all sunshine and roses because we had the moment when Mingus is vomiting from the medicine because mm-hmm. they forgot to eat. But it also shows that you can lead a perfectly functional, sexually active life with HIV. Like, it's not, it doesn't have to be the pariah-inducing status that it might once have been. Yeah, yeah, I really just like how, how I say just like, I didn't say dislike, I really just like how the show is just sort of honest about these things. It doesn't try to lean in one direction or the other. It actually just tries to be honest right. about those kinds of things. And I mean, because, you know, that's one of the things I think that sets it apart from a lot, even the like, most socially conscious shows out there, is that it t- it's not afraid to talk about things that are difficult, but it doesn't give me an after-school special sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just taking things in stride. And I always, I think that's one of the things that Queer Folk, as a brand, if we can call it that, has always excelled at. I kind of just sort of exploring how queer life in all of its various iterations, you just take it in stride and you deal with it. Like it doesn't have to be a lecture or, you know, a social justice post. You just kind of grapple with it as it comes along, which brings us, I think I want to return to something I alluded to earlier where we were talking about stability, Um, not just in terms of Julian, who is, I think, straightforwardly sexual in many ways. They start. He starts out just kind of giving people blowjobs in the bathroom, and he gets arrested. Like you do. As one does. And he gets arrested for soliciting, um, which no- necessitates Noah, like, having to get him off. Ha ha ha. But there's also Marvin, who I think in many ways is an even more, like, radically queer character in terms of their disability, because they're in a wheelchair, and mm-hmm. they are missing both legs, I believe. I believe so. Um, and so they start up this... At first, paid relationship with Ali, that's um, who's Southeast Asian. I don't, I don't want to specify because it's not diegetically made clear. But there's a moment where they are also having explicit sexing because this is queer as folk, so it's in keeping that we would have lots of of sex, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. But and it allows this character Ali to like, can I touch your legs? Like, and it doesn't shy away from like that. Like, it doesn't cut away it doesn't have these moments where you know we we can't show a disabled body having sex like Mm -hmm. that and i again i mean as an able-bodied person i love that about the show like again not just that it shows disabled people with desires but it shows them consummating that desire Mm -hmm. like that's pretty radical when you think about it yep and i just feel like it's using sex the way that it should be as liberating as fun as messy as Mm -hmm. you know divinely glorious like that's what sex can and should be for queer people who want it right exactly but what i also love about uh the marvin character is that marvin isn't some sort of angel either uh he's kind of an asshole to to uh pretty much everybody all the time and what i love so much about the character is that, you know, the show shows us all of these sort of reasons why a person like that might have uh, anger. Right. You know, obviously having to deal with living in a world that very much is not built for, you know, for them in all kinds of ways. You know, he's black, he's, you know, in a wheelchair, gay, all kinds of stuff going on there. And he kind of lets everybody know all the time. Basically, he's the kind of person that's very hard to get close to, yep. which becomes really, really you know, sort of, it becomes an issue when Ali, the sex worker <laughs> that he initially hires to just sort of give him a good time, actually 
actually falls for him. And Ali is actually a really nice guy. And, and very hot. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and Marvin, for all of his sort of like claimed wisdom about the world, really just doesn't know what to do with that. He honestly does not know how to process the idea of someone just sort of being with him. And what I love is that the show sets that up to where a character like Marvin could argue like, well, I've never had anyone in my corner and that's why I don't know how to do this kind of stuff. Except everywhere we go, everyone's in Marvin's corner. Right. Even if there's the scene that I love near the end of the season one where he's trying to sort of like not talk to Ali and try to get away and he's going to go inside of the building and Ali goes to help with the wheelchair and he's like, I don't want you to do that. And he basically just kind of snaps his fingers and a bunch of other people just come and lift him up <laughs> into the building like he doesn't even have to ask that kind of support he actually has really throughout the show. He doesn't quite acknowledge it, though. Yep. No, and I... I love also that the show kind of dives deep into the the morality or the moral code that sex workers live by. Like, I think that, again, sex workers are another community that are often fetishized more... Obviously, they're fetishized precisely because of their nature of their work. Um, but, you know, Ali's pretty open about the fact that, you know, it's just not done for obvious reasons to fall in love with your employer like mm-hmm. or your client. Like, it's just for a whole host of like yeah. you know logistical reasons is a nightmare but he doesn't care i mean he can feel for marvin in a way that is beyond what he originally intended mm-hmm. and i really if the show does get renewed for a second season I, that's one of the storylines i'm most looking forward to Me hoping too. that they develop because i think that's a really crucial one and given how you know i think complexly and nuancedly I don't think that's actually but <laughs> it what, is now it is now anywhere can be an adverb um, how, how with, with how much nuance it addresses the other issues that it raises I think that that's a really important story and it's also worth pointing out that you know a lot of queer people are sex workers mm-hmm. and so I think that that's another representational standpoint and I know that people are gonna bitch that, oh it's just tokenism blah 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 but I think that representation matters when we have these kinds of groups being given major exposure in this kind of major production that's a big fucking deal mm-hmm. like i can't even imagine arguably like even queerest folk in the 2000s would probably not have touched that territory mm-hmm. i think looking does a little bit um if you if you've watched looking you know there's a sex worker storyline but it doesn't get a lot of attention but i think that because marvin and to a lesser extent arlie are given such you know billing i think that we could definitely look forward to seeing that storyline elaborated upon. Yeah, and for me the other thing that I again that I love about how the show dealt with Ali and Marvin's uh, relationship is that the entire time when it, when Ali's sort of pursuing a Marvin he's also you know deadly honest about what that means for his career as a sex worker which is absolutely nothing he's going to continue on doing exactly the work that he did before that falling in love doesn't change the economic reality of needing to earn a living yep exactly (laughs) and so you know obviously i think that between marvin and julian we get two very deeply sexual and deeply complicated people like julian has his own flaws as a person he's also not a saint he's arguably much more likable than than marvin is yeah um in the sense that he's less visibly disabled like he you could still you could quote unquote tell but you know he's not in a wheelchair for example but he also has his own complicated relationship with brody with his parents Mm -hmm. that slowly emerges largely as a result of his relationship with noah Mm -hmm. you know where he sort of has this really powerful confrontation with brody where he's like 
you always treat me with kid gloves, but I don't need you to do that. Like, I'm a fully functioning human. I don't need you to always coddle me all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was a lovely moment, too. Like, the, there are these frankly honest conversations that people only gradually come to have after they've made a complete mockery of their life. But it's mm-hmm. like, see, if you had just had this conversation before, you probably could have avoided it. Yeah. And what I also love about uh, the show, I think it does a good job of balancing with Julian, uh, sort of, you know, issues of his experience in his life and his outlook on all the kind of stuff that come from having, you know, a lifelong disability and what that's meant, uh, particularly in terms of his relationship with his brother, Brody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because again as as someone who has a sibling <laughs> uh, I love that sibling rivalry becomes such an important thing for his story and it's not just a sort of here's a person with a disability and here are all of the issues they have that are related to that he also just has issues from being the brother right. to Brody and, uh, and something that their mother points out uh, to them uh, to uh, Julian especially at the end uh, when we actually see Julian and Brody in real conflict because mm-hmm. it takes a long time in the show for us to get to the point where those two have a real conflict and as someone again who has an older brother I was waiting for that to happen <laughs> because you know Brody like Brenda like a lot of people again tend to sort of infantilize Julian a bit and make all kinds of choices and in this case what did Brody do <laughs> that ultimately pushed Julian to actually be angry with him. Like, what did he, what mistake did Brody make? Do you remember? Refresh me. About the date that, uh, the guy that was super interested in oh, Julian. Yes. Well, yes. It turns out that Brody does hire, speaking of sex workers, a deaf sex worker to have sex with Julian, which Julian only discovers when he accidentally sees the Venmo, basically, on the escort's phone. Mm-hmm. Which, I would be pretty pissed off if I had a sibling that hired a sex worker without telling me. Yeah. It's the consent part that's the important part. Yeah. And Julian's like, dude, I didn't need you to do this for mm-hmm. me. But of course, you know, I could also picture... My, now, my brother would not hire a sex worker for me. <laughs> I don't think there's a universe in which he would ever do that. But I could see him trying to do something supposedly for my benefit mm-hmm. because he's like, well, if you just do this, it'll work for you and it'll be fine. I can totally see something like that happening. Right. And I mean, it's also worth pointing out, just to go back to the disabled thing for a moment, that I like that they have like basically a disabled orgy. Like that's that's mm-hmm. what they host is, is an orgy for queer disabled folks. I thought that was really. I, I hope that that such a thing exists. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but I appreciated that like the as we get into the later season or episodes of the season that we get a deeper into Julian's complicated relationship with Brody, which is predicated in part because he feel or has felt like his parents adopted Brody because they were disappointed in his disability exactly and then of course brody has always felt like he was on the outside because of being the sibling that doesn't have a disability you know for a kid with the kind of issues that julian would have had that takes up a lot of attention from parents right it just does and so Brody felt like he was kind of, he kind of had to be the sort of charming and outgoing and all that kind of stuff just to get any attention at all. Right. And also as the only black member of an all white family. Exactly. And what I love is that because those you can tell that those two characters really love one another. Right. Because they haven't said those things to one another because they haven't wanted to because they were afraid it would hurt the other one. Right. So they've just kind of held on to it themselves. Right. And I also appreciate that Brenda basically says to Julian, like, what are you talking about? Like, I love both of you equally. I wanted another child. And I was, she was on diet pills or something that mm-hmm. affected her fertility. She's like, 
I just wanted another baby. It had nothing to do with you being disabled. Exactly. And again, and that's exactly the kind of thing that, again, as siblings, we do carry that kind of stuff around. We often will develop a very childish, naive idea of something like why our families decided to have another kid or something like that. We will come up with a reason when we're like five. And we just never update that reason. <laughs> I mean, my parents hit perfection with one shot, so... That... <laughs> or you scared them out of having more. <laughs> yeah, a little column A, a little column B. <laughs> That's what my big brother says about me whenever I say, well, mom and dad had me because they were looking for a good child. And he's like, no, you scared them out of having more. <laughs> so maybe then, as a means of concluding, um, we can talk about why this show in 2022. Because um, I... Have to admit that when I heard this show was being rebooted, I thought, "Oh, do we really need a third iteration of this show? Like, does it need to be queer as folk? Like, does it? What's what does it bring?" And then I heard it was going to be like basically an aftermath of the Pulse shooting, which we just celebrated like the sixth year anniversary of recently. And I thought, "Oh God, do we really need televisual trauma again?" Having watched it though, I actually think that, and given this sort of recent news from SCOTUS and such. I do think that it's important that this show is branded as queer as folk because of what the earlier iterations accomplished. I also think that it turns out the post-Pulse-esque shooting is really important because the trauma plays such a key role in so many of their lives, particularly Noah, who we've kind of given short shrift to a bit, but mm-hmm. arguably of all the characters, I think he doesn't get a lot of development as mm-hmm. a character, but he most fully has to struggle with the reckoning of what that shooting entails because daddy is is killed obviously but also because you know he has survivor's guilt like they all do yeah yeah well and i was say and i i don't know if i go so far as to say that he sort of most sort of encapsulate that kind of thing because again as i would remind if i were in the world of the characters as i would remind them all Brody actually got shot, That's true. which is shot. something that everyone seems to actually forget about right. <laughs> throughout the entire thing, is that when they're all dealing with their sort of pain and their trauma related to that event, they kind of forget that out of all of them that are still alive, one actually got shot, and he's the one that they all blame everyone for. That's very true. <laughs> um, but I do, that's, if I had to say, like, why in 2022 do we need this show? Why do we need this trauma storyline? It's because... This is still so much a part of the life we live. Like, we live in a world of mass shootings all the time. We live in a world where SCOTUS is striking down civil liberties, left or right. If that's not fucking trauma, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. But what Queerest Folk 2022 shows us is that all of these characters, whether it's Noah and his grief and his messy relationship with Julian, whether it's Brody finally discovering he loves Ruthie, whether it's Ruthie discovering that she doesn't, hasn't, doesn't want the life that she has is that queer people survive. Like, Mm -hmm. we always manage to triumph. Whether it's, you know, we have to survive a fucking shit ton of stuff, but we always persevere. And so if I had to say to the, you know, the question that Aaron posed to me in the pregame, why this show now, I'd say because it is an inspiration. Mm -hmm. And I, that's part of the reason maybe I loved it and, you know, felt myself so deeply resonating with it. And I agree with all of that too. Those are all, that was all of my sort of initial impressions when I was thinking about the show while we were still watching it was those are the important things that the show can do. But also another important thing that I think that this version of Queer as Folk does in 2022 is as you pointed out that, you know, the original was, was messy in its ways, but it, it, there were lots of lines that it couldn't cross. Mm. Uh, lots of things that, you know, in around 2000, it would have just been too risky or probably a show like that probably would have been pitched more like 99. Um, 
just because of the time it takes to develop stuff. Right. But in showing a, a bunch of obviously imperfect queer folks, that's inviting criticism from like every direction. Right. When we're talking about around 2000. I think things have changed enough that we can be more comfortable in having these kinds of representations that show the warts. <laughs> And not just all of the things about us that are actually respectable, but maybe the things that are just kind of messy. We can show that too. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, to all the haters, I don't think that actually people hate this show. That's not true. But I do hope that people give this show a chance and let themselves feel the kind of, I, this is the way I'm going to put it in my newsletter, the sort of Dionysian joy of queerness. Like that's what this show brings to us. And I love that about it. Yeah. And I really, really hope that Peacock gives it a second season so it can more fully explore this stuff. Now, can you tell people what Dionysian means? <sighs> yes, as my former co-host Mark would inquire, academic translation, please. Essentially, Dionysian is kind of like the rampant, un- unpower- un- what am I looking for? Uh, unruly energies of sex and desire and music and pleasure and all those things. So you turn from the... German philosopher Nietzsche, who used to describe like part of what uh, the impulse of Greek tragedy. So you could have just said our day to day life. I could have, but I wanted to give it a little. People tune into Queens of the Beast for the intellectual gloss that true, I bring true. to the show. Yes. So I was giving the intellectual gloss, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. So I do think that Queer's Folk is is the sort of epitome of the Dionysian, and I think that that's what I appreciated is that it kept that from its previous iterations and updated it for a new generation. And as I said earlier, reminds us of the true power and joy of gay sex mm. and queer sex more generally. So we'll be right back when we'll be doing two PS gays and of course your favorite segment and ours, Are You Even Gay? Okay, so as I alluded to before the break, we'll start out with the PS Gays. That's how we're doing this now. I used to call them gay service announcements, but I think PS Gay works so much better. It's much better for branding. Um, So when we restart our Patreon, that will be one of the things you can buy. We'll be merchandised with PS Gay on it. I digress. But as I alluded to earlier, there are two things we want to talk about today that are rather serious. We are rather flippant here at Queens, but we do have our serious moments. So we'll start out with the worst news, which of course is the striking down of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, which just came out a few days ago as of this recording. And I really cannot express how outraged and alarmed and saddened I am by that. Not because, as a lot of people have rightly pointed out, this is sort of setting the stage for the rollback of other rights, um, as Clarence Thomas made clear in his concurrence with the opinion, but also for the ways that this will specifically impact our cisgender straight or well cisgender straight but also our lesbian friends our trans friends our non-binary friends all of whom i might point out have uteruses like it's not like it's not that this is a straight person problem this affects queer people and it's going to really have a terrible ripple effect on all kinds of healthcare access for all of the most vulnerable members of our community so i think we all need to keep up the pressure we need to vote. We need to make sure we do not get a Republican majority in the National Congress, because if we do, we are seriously fucked because they will pass a nationwide abortion ban. So to remind you, Republicans are terrible. 
And that's just a fact. Yes. And they're not going to rest until they've stripped away reproductive rights from all people, which, of course, will have a disproportionately negative effect on a lot of queer and very vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. And also, again, just to reiterate, this is huge. And yeah, it's not all about just us. Like, you know, we are two cisgender gay men <laughs> who are together. So we're not and we're not looking to have kids or anything like that. Never going to come up for us. We still give a damn. We should all give a damn about this. Right. We are all into that. I mean, as Queer as Folk makes clear, and that's part of the reason we liked having to do it for our national, or, you know, for National Pride Month, is because it shows us that we're all in this together. Like, what affects one of us or one aspect of our community affects the others. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we sometimes forget at our own peril. So, but that brings us to the second serious but a little more optimistic term so as we alluded to at the beginning of the show we just came back from drag brunch here in salisbury maryland which was fun and i loved it every moment of it but this weekend was also salisbury maryland's first ever gay pride parade and festival and if you're not familiar with salisbury is which i wouldn't blame you i didn't know where it was before aaron got a job here it's on the eastern shore the trumpian red part of maryland it's a little island of blue because the city's pretty democratic um, generally speaking, but it's a town of what, 30,000, 33,000 maybe, I think. So it's a very small town. So it's a big deal. It's a very big deal that we have our own pride. It was supposed to happen a couple of years ago, but COVID destroyed everything. But now we're here. And from what we can tell, there were 3,000 people at this festival. And I had to say, I was pleasantly surprised by how many people were actually there yesterday while we were there. The mayor was there. One of our local um, congressional candidates was running. I say all of this, because I think that it's really important that we recognize the value, the real value and importance of local pride celebrations. Like, obviously, I know the big ones, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, New York, so forth. I've been to some of these. I've been to ones internationally. But this is one of the first ones I've been to at a town as small as Maryland, as Salisbury. Like, and I think that's a huge deal that we now have these localities making it visible how supportive they are of queer issues. I think that's a really valuable thing because as a person from a very small town of a of thousand people, but grew up as to a town roughly the size of Salisbury, I can't imagine a celebration like this happening. And I was really excited to see the mixture of young and old people there too. Like I love it. It's I, I feel more alive than ever when I'm at pride celebrations. I'm sure that many queer people feel similarly, but I feel even more so in small places where these kind of celebrations can literally save lives. I can't emphasize that enough. For young people in particular, these are so life-affirming, especially in conservative areas where it can be very difficult to live openly. To even know that this resource is here, to know that elected representatives support queer people is a huge fucking deal. And I just needed to get that out there. (laughs) And I also wanted to just make a plug for not just... Uh, sort of supporting sort of smaller community prides, but actually participating in them. That's actually the other nice thing about uh, these smaller community events is that it's, it's far less intimidating to actually jump in and get involved to not just stand on the sidelines. Uh, you know, in a former life, when I was back on the West Coast, I've got involved with a lot of pride things because of performance groups I was with. And we did, you know, of course, for our large city pride, we always did that. Plus, I've been involved with some other big city pride things. But I really remember 
when we would go out and perform at the smaller uh, pride events further away from the big city. That's where people would come up to you and say how much it means uh, to them to have this event going on. And again, it's also a place where from the other direction, it's less intimidating. It's a lot easier to jump in and be a part of the planning and execution of whatever pride events are going on. So go ahead, jump in and be involved in those things in your community. And I also want to point out that like, it's, it's a brave thing. Like, I mean, because one thing that we saw in this past month in particular were some threats against smaller prides. So that's what makes them even more important, though, as sometimes fraught and dangerous as these things can be. If you can, as Aaron says, get involved. If you can't, at least go to the celebrations themselves, because it really can be so affirming for the most vulnerable among us. And that's just so absolutely crucial, I think. So on an even lighter note... Um, let's do Are You Even Gay? Which I'm usually the one who gets to harass people for their lack of, of gay culture knowledge. I I relish the opportunity to harass Mark and I even more relish the opportunity to harass Aaron because he doesn't live online like I do so he's not always as plugged into what the youngsters are doing. But he does have something to attack me with this week. Mm, so. Now I'm just going to ask you a question. It's not an attack, dear. I can feel the attack coming. <laughs> I just have a simple question for you. Well, I'll, a little bit of a preamble than the question. So we've talked about Queer as Folk, the new version that's been the topic of this podcast. And we talked a lot about the earlier American version. And you notice that we kept talking about it in a weird way. We kept saying like the earlier American version or the 2000s version from America instead of just saying the original version. Because the American version from the 2000s isn't the original queer as folk is it tj it is not there's there's an earlier version from the uk isn't that correct tj that is correct have you seen the original queer as folk tj i actually have not (laughs) you heard it here folks i was going to watch it before i started this podcast but then i did not so Mm. i and i'm shocked and horrified at myself that i have Mm. not seen it before yeah all i'm hearing is excuses in there i'm a small town boy from west virginia i didn't have access Mm. to it okay my parents (laughs) I have it on DVD here at the house. He keeps saying that, but he has not yet produced it, so I don't know if that's actually true. He just hasn't watched it yet. Now, that's it. I won't tease you too much longer. I will just point out for fans who are going to be watching uh, the new Queer as Folk, if you haven't uh, watched it already, there is a brief little shout out to the original UK version in there if you make it all the way through. Oh, you're not going to spoil it for no, them? No, I'm not going to spoil it for them. Oh, I was going to spoil it for them. Because <laughs> even I knew that I knew that the illusion. Mm-hmm. See, he's trying to take some kind of credit for the show that, again, well, he I'm just, hasn't watched yet. I'll just tell you right now. It's when Brody is trying to move to England and he finds a picture of Charlie Hunnam. Or someone using a profile picture of Charlie Hunnam, who is in the original version. And also Brody's flying, going to fly off to Manchester. Right. So that's the illusion. I spoiled it for you. I'm not sorry. <laughs> so I guess you have something to ask me. I believe. Uh, oh, that's right. Uh, so, given uh, TJ that you have not seen the original, the original, original queerest folk, are you even gay? I still like dick in the ass, so the answer to that is yes. So there are lots of straight guys who like that too. Not as much as I do. That's I take probably it, true. It's a vocation for me. As someone once, as a wise man once said, "I am but a vessel waiting to be filled." So I believe I said that. That you did say that. So. <laughs> I will insist that I still am very, very gay. Not buying it.
Well, thank you again, everyone, for joining us for another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. We truly appreciate all of you, our beloved listeners, both during Pride Month, but throughout the year. We have some very exciting developments coming up in the next month. For one thing, we're going to be switching to a weekly schedule. Aaron will still be here two times out of the month, and the other two times I'll be joined by various guests, most of whom will be academics, but we'll keep it, you know, we'll pitch this to the popular, the hoi polloi, shall we say, not to be dismissive, but we'll keep it pitched to those of you who love us for our elevated diction, but our accessible analysis. Aaron's giving that, you this. That means you're still going to like it. Yeah, it means you're still going to like it, yes. So we will be switching to a monthly schedule. I'm also going to be, I promise, I've been promising this for months, and I will finally be devoting an entire Instagram to our account where we'll be doing more queer inclusive stuff. We'll be doing some queer history stuff and so forth and so on. I'm trying to compete with Eric Cervini. If, as you recall from our earlier episodes, we used to have little shout outs to Mr. Cervini. We don't do that anymore. But Eric Cervini, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the pod, as Mark used to say. So Aaron, I'm not even going to bother asking where you can be found on social media because I know you're not to be found on social media. I can be found on TJ social media. That's correct. Um, you can also be starting to watch my soon to be performed drag shows under the name Juliet Brioche. Um, that's a lovely little joke if you if you can get it. But anyway, I don't want to digress too far. I hope you're not teasing these folks with uh, something you're not going to deliver on. I mean, they're used to that by now, right? <laughs> so. On social media, you can find me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. You can also find me on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. And then you can also check out my Substack newsletter titled Omnivorous, where I do write frequently about many gay things. I've written two essays on Heartstopper, no surprise there. I'll be also having some more thoughts on Queer as Folk, as well as a whole bunch of other gay stuff, because I love talking about watching gay stuff. By that, I mean porn, but also <laughs> mainstream stuff. So I would love it if you would head on over there and subscribe because that would help. And speaking of subscribing, don't forget to rate us, Queens of the Bees, on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you may listen to them that offers you a rating function because the more ratings we get, the easier it is for people to discover us. And we love our listeners and we want to reach more of them. So if you have a chance, please do that. We would greatly appreciate it. So for Queens of the Bees, I am TJ. And I'm Aaron. Again, I'm a Pisces and he's an Aries. Do with that what you will. And we can't wait to hear from you and to see you and to talk to you next time. Happy Pride, everyone. Hip, hip.